Welcome to the Dotcom Magazine Entrepreneur Spotlight Series, where your host, Andy Jacob, interviews leading entrepreneurs, founders, and CEOs about their incredible companies and discusses their unique entrepreneurial journeys. If you're the CEO or founder of an exciting and exceptional company, the editorial team of Dotcom Magazine welcomes you to pitch your business story to appear on this exciting interview series by reaching out to Mr. Jacob at Dotcom Magazine at dotcommagazine.com. And without further ado, here is another amazing entrepreneurial story on the Dotcom Magazine Entrepreneur Spotlight Series. Hello, everybody. Andy Jacob here with the dot-com magazine Entrepreneur Spotlight Series. I have not only a fascinating show today, but a very important show today. You know, you come on the show, you come to the show, you come on the show on the platform, and you watch all entrepreneurs doing amazing things. But sometimes there are certain entrepreneurs that are not only doing amazing things, but also really changing the world, changing the way in which people's lives can function. And we have a phenomenal guest on the show today. Her name, of course, is Dr. Risa Gold. She's an MD. She's a board-certified child and adolescent psychiatrist in Cold Spring Harbor, New York. That's what she's mostly well-known for. But she has an organization, a nonprofit called Miracle of Help. Wait till you hear what they're doing. I mean, they're making such an impact in Sierra Leone. And we're going to get into it with her because we have so many questions, but you're going to love the passion and also the way in which they've been able to do so much for so many people that really need it the most in our world. I'm really honored to have Dr. Risa Gold on the show today. Risa, I'm going to call you Risa. Welcome to the Dotcom Magazine Entrepreneur Spotlight Series. Thanks, Andy. In Sierra Leone, they call me Mum Risa. Mumrisa, I love that. Mumrisa. Okay, so Mumrisa, let's get started because here we are, the miracle of help. Your son went on a on a sort of a medical mission to help right. people in Sierra Leone. He came back, right. he said, he said, Mama Risa, or, or you know, mom or mom. whatever he calls you. These people need some help. Let's think about what we can do. And you came up with the miracle of help. Before we get started, let's pull the lens back to 30,000 feet, of course. Tell us about the Miracle of Help nonprofit organization, what you do, and then we're going to get into it. Okay. So based on what my son had told me about the lack of health care in Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone is one of the poorest countries in the world. They had a very, very bad civil war. It brought a once proud country to its knees. And their healthcare system is very fragile. Many areas of the country have no doctors, no nurses, and no healthcare. And my son saw this firsthand. He said, Mom, they have no place to have a baby. They're giving birth in the open fields, or they're trying to walk to the nearest hospital, which is about 34 kilometers away, and they die on the way. They're in labor, they're walking, they die, the baby dies, and then the village elders and the husband carry them home for burial. So he said, we got to do something to help them. I said, absolutely. And I took a trip over to the villages that he had gone to. And I asked the community, 
how could we be helpful in terms of bringing health care? And they said, if you can bring doctors and nurses and supplies, we can donate the land to build a hospital because we need a hospital. That's number one what they said. We need a hospital. They said, we'll donate land, we'll donate raw materials, and we'll donate labor. It, it's unskilled labor, but people will bring sand and stone and make bricks and do all that because we know we need this. Wow. It's so interesting because you listened to the people. The people said, hey, you know, Dr. Gold, we need this to start. And let's talk about what happened after they told you what the need was and where are we with that development of what they wanted to start changing the lives of the people in this in this village. So I I went back home after I had met with everybody and I realized I was going to have to start my own organization and it was going to have to be a nonprofit. Um, and we did a fundraiser and we raised money and we went for our 501c3. So we are a nonprofit and we registered with New York State and with the federal government. And we registered in Sierra Leone as a non-governmental organization. That was step one. And then we had what's called a vision meeting with the people, with the community. And we said, how do you see this going forward? What specifically should we be doing? Because our model is called holistic community-led development. So holistic meaning anything that we need to do, we'll do. And community-led meaning they're going to tell us what we need what they need, we are assuming that they are expert in their own lives and, and that not that we know better. So the community got together for this four-day vision meeting and they said, don't just give us a hospital, we're going to need a skills training center for the indigent moms, the teen moms, the poor moms that have babies and can't support them. We're going to need a farm to create the fruits and vegetables and food to feed the patients and the doctors and the nurses. And we would like a meeting place to meet with our government officials because there are big NGOs and there's their, they have a democratic government with a parliamentarian system and they would like an official place where they could sit down with their government officials and talk about their needs. So that's how we came up with our holistic model, which is physical health, economic health, social health, and government interface. And economic health, which I didn't mention before, is they said, please help our farmers. Our farmers farm by hand. There's no, we have no tractors. We have no mechanization. There's no electricity. There's no running water. There's no cell service. There's no internet. Actually, they have, have cell service, no internet. And they said, our farmers are struggling. Help our farmers. So that was the economic piece. So we drew up a plan to build a very small 10 to 15 bed hospital. And on the grounds of the hospital will be a skills training center to teach the skills that the women asked for, which are sewing, weaving, dyeing, vegetable gardening. And I added literacy and computer skills. Because even though they don't have electricity and they don't have computer skills, this is 2023. And I feel like if we could also teach them about modern day electronics and technology, that could help them get on their feet. Wow. So 
the reason I'm so happy to be talking to you is because we need to get the word out about this and your magazine and your television show is incredibly helpful for us to get the word out and to tell people what we're doing. So um, we have already started, the villagers have been as good as their word, and they've donated a huge parcel of land to us. And on their land was an existing, small, very dilapidated clinic. And when I went to see the clinic, it had no sink, no toilet, no running water, no well, no place to wash your hands, no screens on the windows. And I said to myself, I can't bring a doctor here. There's no place to wash your hands. There's no place to see a patient. It's a structure. So the first thing we did was we renovated that structure and dug a well. And we dug a septic system and we installed bathrooms and showers, painted, plastered, did everything to uh, put windows in with gla glass windows, with screens so that the malaria mosquitoes don't fly in and out. And we are now seeing patients seven days a week in that clinic. And once a month, we bring two doctors, two lab techs, and a midwife. And they work for three straight days and just see as many patients as they can. So during the month, our clinic functions as what's called a maternal child health post. We see pre and postpartum women, pregnant women, children under five, and once a month, we have our big pop-up clinic with the doctors. So Great. that's our physical health component. We had a large donation of soap given to us by a donor. So um, we've started two malnutrition clinics because our clinicians tell us that 80% of the children, 80% of the children in our communities have some degree of malnutrition. So in response to that, we started two malnutrition clinics and we're treating severe acute malnutrition and moderate acute malnutrition according to World Health Organization standards and guidelines. And we've been um, certified by the Sierra Leone government for our malnutrition clinics. So what's happened, our first 25 malnourished children graduated successfully and their moms started to cry because they said, how will we feed our children now? So this donated soap that we were given, the women, the first 25 graduates, the moms are selling this soap to support their children. So half of the soap is going to the moms to sell and half of it, we're setting up a school hygiene program to teach children how to wash their hands, about how hygiene, when to wash your hands, so that we can reinforce the use of soap. Um, the local paramount chief in the villages is very, very supportive of what we're doing. And he donated to our use two factories that exist in the village, and one is a soap factory. So when our donated soap is all sold, these 25 women will operate the soap factory. Wow. And then have yes. a way to sustain themselves. That's fa fabulous, Risa. You know, I think about it. You're talking about a place where one in 17 mothers die during childbirth. You're talking about no electricity. You're talking about no running water. Yes. You're talking about illiteracy. You're yes. talking about things that people watching the show 
many things as entrepreneurs we take for granted. So okay. let's talk a little bit about what happens to their physiology. What happens to their faces when they see you and your team show up? And, and what's that like when you arrive? Bring me inside that. Let me feel that when it's, they're there and then you incredible. guys show up and do all your magic. It's incredible. The, the, um, the villagers, um, they have traditional dances and they have traditional instruments and drums. And our, our clinic serves five communities. And in fact, we did a clean water project where we brought clean drinking water to seven communities for the first time. So now seven villages have clean drinking water. It, the wells were given to the communities. We don't own them. It's on their property, on their land. So all these villages come together with their traditional singers and dancers and their drums. Um, and they put on their traditional garb and they, they they wait hours for our car for what they don't know when we're coming. So they all come hours early and then they greet us with drumming and dancing and singing. And um, all the village chiefs come and they have these traditional dancers that dress in straw costumes that look like spirit spirit gods. They call them devils, but they look like spirit spirits to me. And those dancers dance. So it's a tremendous outpouring and it's um it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And and what's interesting to me is even though I'm so far from home I'm, I'm thousands of miles from New York and I'm in a, a different country and I'm in a very remote area. I feel like I'm at home. Isn't that because something? People are warm and friendly and so appreciative. That's really interesting and amazing what's going on. And of course, people watching the show, people from all over the world are going to want to reach out to you. They're going to want to say, hey, I want to get involved and you, you are not shy about it. You want people to get involved, whether it's a dollar or, you know, a bigger, you know. That's right. Larger donation. Let's That's talk right. about how people can get involved and help what you're doing at Miracle of Help. Okay. So as you mentioned, any we are a grassroots organization and we are all volunteers. Every single one of my board members, all of our advisors, all are volunteers. So Every dollar, every penny that we raise goes overseas, goes to Sierra Leone, and goes to our programs. I mean, other than postage for our newsletter, everything goes overseas. So as a grassroots organization, we we depend on and need and rely on donations. And it no donation is too small. I have a donor who gives a dollar a month. That's wonderful. We're happy. And um, not only... Uh, uh, Donations of funds, which are incredibly important, but donations in kind. If people could donate um, laptops, computers, we need five iPads, cell phones, um, even old cell phones, as long as they're working, old iPhones if people have them, um, uh, expertise. If people who are listening have expertise and they're like, oh, I've always wanted to help a nonprofit and I know something about cocoa farming or rice farming or how to run a clinic. We welcome volunteers. If people know about social media, if people, any way that any of your listeners or viewers thinks, gee, I have something that I could 
I could bring to the table. They could just call me on my cell. Um, uh, our website is miracleofhelp.org. Uh, there's a donate button on the website. And any sort of help is most deeply appreciated and, and will be received with great gratitude by us here in the U.S. and by our community in Sierra Leone. And I have to say, our community in Sierra Leone, our seven staff members of Miracle of Help are all Sierra Leonean born and raised college grads who have stuck their necks out for us. Um, we don't pay very much. We're a very small organization, but they believe in what we're doing. So, um, you know, there's very idealistic volunteers here and very idealistic volunteers over there. And then we have our uh, community health workers. We have 14 community health workers who are our, our help on the ground with patients who are villagers. And uh, we would like to thank them with with some stipends, with a t-shirt, with a nice pair of walking shoes or a pair of pants. Um, anything that people want to donate, books, um, educational materials, would be very, very greatly appreciated. It's really great. You know, you graduated from Harvard. You went to medical school, I believe, at Columbia University. When you were back in school, and you were thinking about your life, the, the process of your life, and thinking about doing this clinical uh, work that you do. Did you ever imagine that you would be changing lives? And, and what's that evolution been for you sort of as a person to start getting into this? You know, I I knew that I wanted to be a doctor, and I knew I wanted to be a psychiatrist, and I knew I wanted to get married and have a family. And I knew I wanted to be in private practice to help people. And that's really as far as my vision went. I, I didn't, I couldn't conceive of anything farther, but when we were raising our kids, my husband's a physician also, and so is my older son and my older daughter, we did talk a lot about public health and the importance of public health. Because if you're a doctor on Main Street, like I am, I see one patient at a time. If you're a public health doctor, you can affect hundreds of people. And my daughter actually, who is also a psychiatrist, went on and got a public health degree, of which I was very proud. And she actually spent two different um, uh, medical missions in Africa as well, working with childhood malnutrition. But I never thought until my son came home that I could actually do it myself. I It never occurred to me. But I had read about Albert Schweitzer when I was in high school. I knew, you know, that it was possible to go to Africa and and be of service. And it didn't really become real until my son and daughter told me about their experiences that maybe I could be of help. I, you know, I think of myself as just one person. But as it is now, people are walking in from 27 villages to our clinic. And we've had thousands of clinic villages, uh, vi clinic visits already, thousands. So people are walking two and three and four days to get to our pop-up clinics. And they're coming from every direction. Amazing. And I was like, one person can make a difference. Yes, you are. And your team is. And it's so remarkable. We think about the pop-up clinics 
Dr. Golden, we seen we we have seen some pictures on the website. I mean, there's just people like they want the help and they're very excited and they're so thankful. I bet that's a great piece of your work. Who is responsible in the pop-up clinic? Do you bring in doctors from the local area who do, who does the lab tech work? How do you sort of integrate all of that into a pop-up clinic so that it's successful, sort of out in the middle of an area that they've never had it before? Right. Well, first, I absolutely have to mention my board here because a 501c3 by definition has a board of directors and our board has been instrumental in every step of this. One person cannot do it by themselves. It takes a village. It takes a community. So our board has gathered together a community here of support, and we have a community there that we're working with and that supports us. So our board here has plainly stated that they want this effort to be by Sierra Leone and for Sierra Leone. We don't want to bring in American doctors and nurses unless we absolutely have to or for training purposes because they have their own doctors and nurses. And they have a very enlightened president, President Bio, uh, uh, Julius Mata Bio. And he has said that any outside organization that will come into Sierra Leone and build a hospital, the Sierra Leone government will partner with. And they will staff the hospital and they'll run it. So they don't have the funds to put up the physical plant. But what if the physical plant is up, they'll staff it and run it. And as good as their word... The Sierra Leone government has been supplying our doctors and our nurses and our lab techs. We've raised raised money for scholarships, but those scholarships have all gone to Sierra Leone students. So we have a clinical health officer who's in school now, which is like our primary care doctor. We just graduated our first midwife. So she's been going to our pop-up clinics and we have, um, a nurse who's in training to become a state registered nurse. So those three are, and we have our country country director is in graduate school to get his um, master's in public health. And this is all over there. So we've raised more money for scholarships. We have another eight scholarships ready to go. And those are all going to be for Sierra Leone students so that we eventually have lab technicians, hospital administrators, the the people that we need to run this hospital. And we don't want to give them a hand out. We want to give them a hand up. Yeah, I love it. They're hanging on to that hand for dear life. (laughs) Gosh, I love it. It's fantastic. And of course, you're sort of the mother of invention because in the pop-up clinics, you started to notice, the team started to notice that many of the patients needed surgery when you were doing the screening. And you've been able to make an impact in that regard as well. Let's talk about that. Okay. So, you know, we get our information from our clinicians. It's our two government doctors. And now we have a third clinician who's on our staff. And we meet with them and they tell us what they see when they're doing these very intensive days. And there is no option for surgery. Our clinic is an outpatient clinic also. There's no place for a patient to stay overnight. It's just a waiting area and four little doctor's offices, but there's no overnight facilities. So for surgery, you need to stay overnight. So we asked the Sierra Leone government, could we bring our patients to the government hospital? And they said, absolutely. 
So we started by driving our patients to the government hospital in Kailan. And our staff stayed with the patients overnight because for all of our patients, it was the first time they'd ever left their village or left home. It was a very scary undertaking for them. So our staff stayed with them, made sure their surgery was complete, made sure they got their post-surgical instructions, and then drove them home. So we budgeted for about two surgeries a month, and we did that for a year and a half or so. And then an American doctor here, Dr. Ray Shapiro, volunteered to go and train their surgeons. So Dr. Shapiro, God bless him, went to Sierra Leone, went to the Kailan General Hospital and spent several weeks training their surgeons and did about 22 more cases. After Dr. Shapiro came and he was a huge hit with the, with the doctors in, in Sierra Leone, they loved him. Um, after he did his um, medical training program for them, the surgeons at the Kailan Hospital said, we don't see why we can't come to your clinic and do the surgery there. So now the government hospital surgeons are coming down to our clinic when we have the pop-up clinic, identifying the patients that the nurses have triaged, doing our surgery right on site, same day surgery. They set up a tiny little operating area. Wow. And then the patients can recuperate at home. Wow. I mean, if I would have said to you, 20... 10 years ago, you'd be never cooperating with the Sierra Leone government. You'd be doing something with them impactful. And they would not only want to be involved with you, but step up and start bringing physicians in and all kinds Versus. of things with this project you have. You would have said that I was crazy, right? Absolutely. And it, step by step, I feel like Miracle of Help is the right name for us because we are bringing help. And it is does seem sort of like a miracle that this is happening. It, it's it's way beyond anything that I expected. I I had no idea that we would grow this big this fast. Yeah, I love it. Now I want to talk a little bit about the clean water project. I mean, I love that because I would imagine, and you'll talk about the project, but I'm thinking sure. that some of these people have never really even experienced clean water prior to your project being put up in one of their villages. Let's talk about the clean water project. It's Excellent. phenomenal. So again, Andy, it the project started with our clinicians who noticed that the children in our clinics were getting sick over and over again with gastrointestinal diseases, um, parasites, bacteria, uh, and we would treat them with antibiotics and then they would get sick again. And I was like, I don't understand why they keep getting sick. Do they have clean water to drink? So we sent runners to the villages to see, did they have clean water? And the runners came back with the following news. The only village that had clean drinking water was Golan, where we had dug the well. And that the villagers were drinking from the river, but the river is also where they wash their clothes and where animal waste goes and where people use it as an outdoor bathroom. And the villages upstream wash their clothes, animal wastes go into the river and human waste. So the other drinking source was muddy pools, stagnant pools of rainwater that were infested with mosquitoes and dirty. 
And this is what the children were drinking if they couldn't get to the river. So a very generous donor, the New Hope Foundation, who's, they're very interested in clean water, and they heard about this situation, and they said, we'll fund a clean water project. So with, with their financial backing, that's how we dug the wells for the seven communities. And we didn't dig them. We organized a well digging team in each village. The villagers dug the wells by hand. We supplied the skilled labor. We supplied the um, the well head, the pump, the, the machinery of the well. And we did a training program for each village so that they would know how to repair their well. So now each village has dug their well, uh, and we hit water at about 36 feet, and they dug these beautiful straight shafts right down into the ground. They're lined with cement. They have all the equipment all set up. And other well-meaning organizations have tried to do this, but they come with American parts or European parts or Russian parts. And if a well breaks with Russian parts or European parts, the Sierra Leone people can't fix it. So we used Sierra Leone parts. The The wells are made with Sierra Leone parts and each village, we have another generous donator, donate, donor who donated seven well repair kits. So each village has the actual repair kit that you need to repair the well. It's a Sierra Leone kit with all the wrenches and the screwdrivers and all the gadgets inside. It's like a huge metal box that has all these different tools inside so that if there's a problem, they can fix it. One of the issues with with um, uh, non-governmental organizations or um, outside organizations coming in is they come in, but they don't think about sustainability and they don't think about repair. Right. So, and you're also using solar panels to help. And 36 right. feet is not... A real deep well, so there was water there all there the time. There. It just took the miracle of help to sort of find it. That's right. And the the other thing that we had heard when when we had sent word to the villages was the reason, even if there was a well in the village, children and old people could not operate it because it's cranked with a heavy hand crank that it means like a grown person has to crank the pump to get a a, a, a well generating water. And children and old people can't crank those heavy pumps. So this is the reason why we put solar panels on our wells. The solar panel powers a submersive pump that brings the water to a holding tank. And the holding tank can be accessed with a spigot and a knob. So now children, teenagers, old people can access the water because it's being stored in a huge storage tank. So this design was made by our technical um, staff in Sierra Leone. They designed it. It's the first of its kind in Sierra Leone, a solar powered uh, water pump. And they're working. They're working. It's fantastic. And just clean water can change the dynamic of an entire community, an entire continent. I mean, really, when you think about it now, We've only cut out a certain amount of time. It's so fascinating. I love the interview. I love the conversation. But something else that you're doing, and for the entrepreneurs watching the show, think about how this 
next part of our discussion can translate into what you're doing as an entrepreneur, because not only is Dr. Gold and the Miracle of Health providing all of these great services, but they're also putting people in the position to win. In other words, they're teaching them things and teachers are teaching other teachers and then teachers are teaching teachers who then have students that then teach others. And they're making this sort of pay it forward opportunity happen. And one thing that I love what you're doing is with the Farmers Cooperative. Yes. So yes. before we let you go, I want you to just touch on that briefly because you're really bringing all the local farmers together. Yes. And they really have joined yes. a cooperative and they know yes. now that if they work together yes. and they get organic certification and things like that, that their yes. crops will be more valuable. So let's exactly. talk about that. All right. So um, initially the farmers had approached us and asked us if they could, if we could help them. So I had found an agronomist, a soil expert in the U.S., um, Peter Ash, and he, um, out of the goodness of his heart, went three different times to our farmers and taught them the principles of organic farming, how to prepare the soil, how to make compost, how to dig berms and swales, all kinds of extraordinary things, double dug beds. And my thought was, if we could help the farmers grow their crops organically, the crops would be worth more money. So, uh, you know, somebody had told me that one of the issues that our farmers face was that each farmer sells their crops individually and no one farmer has that much to sell. But if they could form a cooperative, they could pool their crops and the whole harvest would be worth more. And this is the thing that I'm probably the most proud of, or one of the things I'm most proud of is that everybody said, you'll never get the farmers to agree because they're they're worried, they're a little bit suspicious of each other. Would they get a fair shake? Would they get the, their money back? But because we had helped them with the organic um, uh, farming lessons, they had come together as a group and they were working together and they were willing to form a cooperative. So 500 farmers have signed up in our cooperative and the the first step once we had formed the cooperative was to help them begin to grow organic cocoa because these are 500 cocoa farmers. So we, 16 villages agreed to help. 11 nurseries were set up and a nursery is where you raise little cocoa seeds in sort of a biodegradable plastic bag. And when the seed is a big enough sprout, you can plant it in the field. So the each of our 500 farmers pledged to give an acre of their land to organic cocoa. And we've planted a fast growing variety called Amazon. Amazon's ready in three years. And in three years, we'll have our first organic cocoa harvest, which will bring the farmers more money than their uh, traditional cocoa, which has um, uh, chemical fertilizers and uh, sprays so these will be raised just with compost and no spray. And the most interesting thing is the farmers have just asked us to help bring their existing cocoa crop to market. So even before the organic cocoa is ready, they've asked us for our assistance. And now we're organizing um, 
helping to bring the cocoa to market such that um, their co-op can be certified. Powerful. Once their co-op is certified, we've they're already certified with the government, but they have to be certified with the um, the trade fairs, which are the buying the big buying organizations. Once the cooperative is certified, they won't need us to take their crops to market. They can directly take their crops to market. I love so it. it's it's thrilling. And the rice farmers and the coffee farmers in our community have already asked for our help. They started with faith. And now they have trust and it's powerful because you can see how trust is taking this organization to, to newer heights every single day. We're going to bring you back on the show. I have so many more questions, but before I let you go, we have to talk about entrepreneurship. I mean, here you are, you know, you're a board certified child and adolescent, you know, psychiatrist, you've got a practice getting you, you know, a time on the show is very difficult because you still have this practice going. You have the miracle of help. You've got that organization going. Let's talk to the younger entrepreneurs who are maybe having a little bit of a tough time in their business. Maybe they're hitting a wall or maybe they can't get through the wall. Maybe they're freezing in the frame a little bit. Maybe you can share some, did they call you mama, Risa? Mom, it's like British, M-U-M. Maybe mom. maybe you could give us some mom, Risa <laughs> wisdom about how to get through a tough time as an entrepreneur and keep on pushing. Well, the... the um... Probably the best piece of advice that I've gotten is to ask for advice. Anytime I don't know what to do, instead of just stressing, I call and I ask for advice. And invariably, that has gotten us over the next hurdle because there are so many people who have expertise and there are so many people who know things and People are like, oh, wait a second, you know, I read something somewhere or my neighbor knows somebody. I, I was at lunch with a friend of mine. She was in from California and I was telling her our soil expert had unexpectedly decided that the original one we were going to use, that she wasn't coming to help us. And I was like, you know, my soil expert quit and I don't have somebody. And she said, wait a second, I know somebody. And it was Peter Ash was her contact. This is my friend from California. And so asking advice is probably the best thing that anybody told me. They said, just keep asking, network, talk to everybody you know. If they have a contact, talk to that person. And just keep your ears open because little pieces of information come forward and all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait a second, I didn't know that. That's going to be very helpful to us. We're going to be able to move forward with that. So um, asking advice, definitely. And... um Ask your neighbors, ask your friends, ask the people in your church group, ask ask the people that you work with and ask your people from your kids' school. You know, don't be afraid to just ask people. And 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 information comes forward and then people start thinking about it. And they're like, you know, you asked me a couple of weeks ago about this and I had this idea. What do you think? Great advice. I mean, ask people, get a mentor, get a number of mentors that actually care about you. Yes. And yes. things happen by happenstance if you just ask the right questions and, right. and ask questions that maybe you were afraid to ask, but after you ask it, you feel so good about asking it because things get clear for you. And That's you've right. done a great <laughs> job as the president of Miracle of Help. You've got such a great team changing the lives of people in Sierra Leone. 
Dr. Risa Gold, MD, Mum Risa. I want to thank you so much for coming on the Dotcom Magazine Entrepreneur Spotlight Series today. Andy, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I so appreciate that your interest, your help, and getting the word out is just invaluable. Thank you.